After a long period of decline, beginning in the late 1970s, Manchester City faced the indignity of going down to the third tier of English football in 1998. Few during those dark days could imagine that a decade later, they'd be owned by one of the richest men on earth, and so provoked the ire of the established order that Sir Alex Ferguson famously declared them noisy neighbours. As is often the case when clubs become suddenly wealthy, it took some time for the expenditure to translate to success. But in 2011, City won the FA Cup with a winning goal for one of their key signings, Yaya Torre, and qualified for the Champions League by finishing ahead of Arsenal. Heading into the 2011-12 season, they strengthened again, raiding Arsenal for Gael Clichy and Sami Nasri, most importantly bringing in the highly raced Argentinian Sergio Aguero from Atletico Madrid. The stage was set for the most epic Premier League title races of all. So I've got Maz and Pete with me tonight, and I suppose we're dealing very much with a similar situation to when we did the Mourinho-Chelsea um, in season one, in that this is an example of a club becoming fabulously wealthy, making a few mistakes in the transfer market, but ultimately it all coming together after they've had a couple of different managers uh, give it a go. And um, you ended up with a really, really good team under Mancini and then basically the same person under Pellegrini for the couple of years after that as well. So difference the, the very different to the Pep side that we see today, but um, but nevertheless still a very, very good team. And the one that broke their, their duck um, in winning major, major honours. Um, so let's start with the purchase then. So, you know, 2008, the Abu Dhabi group actually buy City and immediately there's a massive um, rash of signings to, uh, first of all, float Mark Hughes, um, who uh, doesn't end up having this success. But among those sort of that first initial bunch of signings was some of the spine of to that title winning team, um, particularly company. Yeah, company's really the one they got right in that batch, isn't he? Uh, I, I'm fairly sure that the, the takeover doesn't go through to the very, very last day of the window, but some of the cash that they were splashing kind of makes you think that they knew it was going through and maybe there was some kind of wrangling behind the scenes and, you know, handing money across because uh, Company and Zabaleta, I guess, are the two that really stand out now. But at the time, all eyes were on the very dramatic signing of, of Rubinho, who was expected to go, I think, to Chelsea until the very last minute and then there was a report later on that he thought he was signing for man united and it was a very odd set of events on that last day uh other than that i mean who did, I, I remember there was quite a lot of activity in the january as so well that gareth barry is one um that's a year or so later yeah i was thinking more of just the initial batch of that kind of 08 uh, to 10 period you know so right well barry because because in my head, you see, there's two definite kind of strands to this. You've got the very first one where it's almost like throwing cash at the wall and seeing what sticks. And that's why it doesn't work. The signings like Joe, for instance, you know, um, you know, Robinho, obviously a wonder kid, Brazilian, never played in the league before. But what they start to do from the 9-10 season in particular is they start to poach players from the teams that they're trying to overtake so Lescott comes in from Everton obviously by one of their star defenders Barry comes in from Villa we've been six every couple of years you know if you look at the teams that they tend to get their players from they're the teams coming fourth fifth and sixth yeah in that that run of the, you know and Arsenal is obviously the one they basically buy half the team of and I'm sure Maz has got plenty to add on that yes um it, it, it's a horrible little time this um and I think I think I've uh, I've raved before on this show about um, 
how good I thought uh, Colo Torre was and how that was probably Wenger's biggest biggest mistake in, in letting someone go over the years, especially seeing it was uh, apparently over Gallas and him not getting along and he, he stuck with Gallas, which is weird. Could have moved him along, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure quite a few teams would would have rather have moved Gallas along uh, as good a player as he was in his prime. But yeah, you know, it, it was uh, Torre and Adibayor, wasn't it? The where it started, and Adibayor obviously being the the higher profile one. Uh, I wasn't disappointed to be shot of him, to be honest with you. Good player that he was on his day. Yeah. Not not someone I, I particularly liked even before he, he went to City. So, uh, yeah, that's where it started. And it, it didn't stop for a while, did it? No, indeed. So, that, I mean, that 0-9-10 window is particularly interesting, actually, looking at it. So, Barry comes in from Villa for £12 million, which, given the amount of games he'd play for, for City, ends up being a really cheap price, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, uh, Rocket was Santa very Cruz, unsettled anyway. No, indeed. Um, for, from Blackburn um, for, for 18 million. So Mark Hughes, I guess, saw a little bit of himself um, in a target <laughs> man of that kind. They get a backup goalkeeper, Stuart Taylor, uh, again from Villa. They get Tevez somewhat controversially. Tevez crosses the Manchester Divide. There was all that weird thing where he was owned by a third party company. Yeah, Gia Karobchian's little group, wasn't it? Uh, and there was the whole controversy where they first moved to West Ham about the legality of that in English football. Yeah. Obviously, that then kind of got resolved in in their favour. And, and the transfer of Tevez is really what pushes this United City rivalry into another kind of level, because up to now, even with all the, the investment and City moving up the league, I think Man United still kind of condescended to Man City as they had done through the 1990s and, and the, you know, the first bit of this millennium up to now. But Tevez was a very, very important Man United player and to, and to steal him across, I think that really changed the equation and it's never really tilted back. If anything, you know, the axis of power has shifted. Yeah, that, yeah. that was a huge, huge sign of intent, wasn't it? That was the moment, you know, the, the thing is what City didn't have is at that point is recent history. So, and United just oozed it. So you can have all the money in the world, but that that might get you above 99% of the teams in the league, but it won't get you above the team that has been dominating the game for that long. So when you sign a top player from United, that's really a, a real big sign of intent. And at that moment, you do start to think, hmm, OK. And he's 25 as well. You know, they tell him it's one of their top players in his prime or coming into his prime even. He hasn't reached it yet on, on paper in theory, you know. Uh, it's just a, a whole new, you know, they've done this to Villa so far in the likes of taking Barry, that you know, taking Santa Cruz from Blackburn, taking Lascott from Evan, taking top players from everyone else, taking them from the champions, basically. That's, you know, it's just another level entirely. And not only that, like Tevez, that Tevez, Rooney, Ronaldo front line have been so key to United. And obviously they've lost Ronaldo by this point as well. Um, and so... It is going to be very much all on Rooney's shoulders, you know, to kind of carry United forward. Um, and he does a really good job of it, actually. When he, and being the main man, actually, I think, suits him quite a lot. But you could see United's personnel. You know, if you if you look at who United bring in for the 11-12 season, you know, it's, it's no disrespect to Ashley Young, 
but you know it's it's Ashley Young, it's Phil Jones, it's a very young David De Gea, and you could kind of see the United's level had gone down and the City's level had definitely gone up. But to go back to the yeah, to go back to those signings that Asbio obviously we talked about, Torre we've talked about, uh, another ex-Arsenal, Silvino on a free. I don't remember that being particularly significant. Um, Lescott from Everton, as we've discussed, 22 million for Lescott. I suppose he, play, he ends up playing quite a lot of games for them, so fair enough. But he, he's clanger in that final QPR game that puts him in trouble, funnily enough. And then one I'm sure they'd rather forget about is Adam Johnson from Middlesbrough, given uh, where he currently is uh, in the British legal system. Um, they'll be very glad, I think, that it didn't really work out and he's not plastered all over the DVDs of the title winning season. They can still use all those clips without having the uh, the unfortunate <laughs> memory. No, indeed. Let's come back to company and Zabaleta then, because as you said, Pete, they are really the heart and soul of this Manchester City team for a really long time. Uh, and, you know, Zabaleta, who, by the way, was an absolutely sensational uh, pundit on the World Cup a couple of years ago, just was one of the most reliable footballers I can ever remember watching. Never had a bad game, was Mr. Reliable. And him and company just completely locked down that defence. You know, if you look at a, a back four of Zabaleta, company, Lescott or Richards and um, and Clichy, well, you know, that is definitely a kind of title winning looking back four. And then, of course, from their own kind of youth system, they kind of discover Joe Hart as well. Yeah, they're very solid uh, at the back from quite early on, as I recall. There was a little bit of tinkering and trying to get things right further up the field. But just those two signings and, you know, I think they bring Wayne Bridge in at the same sort of time. He doesn't really work out to quite the same degree. And I think it's because... You know, Richards exceeds expectations for those first few years, at least. And Zabaleta, as you say, I mean, not only did he never had a bad game, but he was doing it for so long. Uh, you know, he played. When did he actually leave City in the end? 2017, 2018, something ludicrous like that. He went to West Ham for a couple of seasons, didn't he, at the end of his career? Yeah, at the um, age of yeah. like 58. Um, <laughs> yeah. And was still pretty good, as I re- if I remember right. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a, so some of those building blocks were there already. And I remember the Joe Hart thing came along because they loaned him out to Birmingham and he had an absolutely brilliant season for them playing behind uh, Roger, uh, Johnson and Scott Dan. It was that Birmingham team where you kind of begrudgingly had to admire them for their solidity, if nothing else. And Joe Hart was a big part of that. And I forget who their number one was, but he was kind of going back against, was it given that he unseated? Uh, it was a keeper with a much bigger reputation and uh, Joe Hart kind of won that. It's funny to think now because his reputation has plummeted, but he went back and he was the the Golden Glove winner like three, four years in a row. He was, you know, team of the season material and was, you know, just a big part of City having that rock solid look about them really from, you know, the first big wedge of cash that they spent. And once they started to add the rest of the elements to the team, it would be, you know, they they would just start flying. Well, it's funny as well, because Kasper Schmeichel had emerged and been really good for them as well. And I remember thinking at the time, not having so much of heart, actually. um, I couldn't believe that, that, you know, given, you know, the the Schmeichel lineage and everything, I always thought it was really odd that they, you know, replaced him with this English kid. But, uh, you know, it, I guess 
for the fans as well, you know, this initial City team, there was a bit of an English identity to it. You know, you had Lescott, you had Milner, um, who we'll talk about in a minute. You had Richards, you had Hart. So there was that kind of, um, yeah, that, that connection the fans could have with the English players, as well as some of the, you know, the outstanding foreign talent they brought, they brought in. Um, and I know Hart was definitely, he was one of the emotional heartbeats of that side. Like, you see his reaction to the, you know, the final Aguero goal in this season. And he was a really good keeper for a long time. Just sometimes keepers just drop off a cliff at a certain age. Um, I remember the same thing happening to Paul Robinson at Spurs, who had been a fantastic keeper for, for us and for that Steve McLaren England team. And then suddenly just, you know, he just went and it was really swift decline. And the same thing happens to Joe Hart, but we shouldn't forget how good he was in his... You know, in his yeah, co- confidence is a big thing with goalkeepers, I think, as well. And when that starts to go, yeah, it could be a long way back. And just look at De Gea, for example. Look how good he was for so long and then just seemed to drop off a cliff. And now he's bringing it back again the last couple of seasons. But so, you know, you can pull out of it. But yeah, no, he was a fantastic keeper for a, for a very, very long time. And yeah, the, the decline was very steep. So we get to 2010 and we start to see a few more familiar names that would become really, really key. So a young Jerome Boateng uh, for 10 million and obviously, you know, showed flashes of, of his potential. And I remember being very, very good, actually. And he had played very well for, for Germany at that, at that World Cup in that very exciting Yogi Loew team. Um, Yaya Torre, of course, comes in from Barca for 24 million. Again, that just seems startlingly cheap, doesn't it? For what he gave yeah I think that part of the reason is that the handcuffs were really on him playing in that system at Barcelona he he seemed to have kind of a a more withdrawn role he was, a, he was a four wasn't he yeah um, very, very very much that so as well so I remember when he first came in there was a lot of skepticism about him as a creative player and then within about three weeks it was like oh okay <laughs> now, now we see what, what this is it was kind of like this sort of monstrous you know if you imagine like Vieira as a 10 just striding through midfield and just unleashing thunderbolts from 25 yards like he was completely unplayable in his pomp I just I don't think I've ever seen a footballer quite like him because he just he looked like him he he was I know people use this phrase a lot but he really was a man playing with boys (laughs) like he just (laughs) I've never known a player that that's so instantly looked at home in English football um, and looked like he could have played in any era of English football. Like you could have stuck him in with Sunes and, you know, and McDermott and they'd have been running scared from him. I think um, he was just as well as his physical attributes, you know, great close control, fantastic technique, just a, a player that absolute was a, a joy to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute beast. Just dominant in that midfield. Yeah, you know, one one of one of my absolute favourite from an era that I wasn't watching a great deal. Yeah, this guy jumped out at me every single time I watched any football whatsoever. The guy just he just dominated a field, absolutely dominated a field. And then of course another snip of a buy, David Silver, twenty four million. Yeah, and you just think you know, there's a statue of the guy outside the ground, and he picks yeah. him up for twenty four million quid. It says it all as well that, you know, Silva wasn't even like a regular starter for Spain. He would he'd be in and out of the team and, and so on. 
but you, you saw how good he was. I mean, just by the end of the season, he'd, you know, written his name into the club history. Some of the, the ball was stuck to his feet. And you start to think, OK, now not only do they have that spine in the team that we've already spoken about, but you've got someone with the power of Yaya Torre and someone that you just can't take the ball off playing just outside him. OK, so so how do you stop them? Most people couldn't. His 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 assist numbers in the Premier League are just like absolutely ridiculous when you look at them. I mean, I think like in terms of like the top Premier League assisters, I think he's right at the top. You know, I think like people like Lampard and Gerrard are sort of right up there purely because of the fact they played for so long and they played in midfield for, for very good teams. Um, but if you look at people like like David Silva and um, and Christian Eriksen, you know, um, <laughs> you you really kind of see how good they were in those kind of free eight or or number ten roles. But but again, a player that just did it for City like season in, season out, and not only that, like. He was quite renowned in a way that Aguero wasn't for, for really fitting in in Manchester. Like, you know, David Silva, like, was regularly seen out and about in Manchester, you know, like, really settled into the city, spoke very good English, had his family out there with him um, and just seemed to be just a, a part of the city and a part of the club in the way that those kind of players that end up defining an era, you know, do. I remember right, he was the one that was famous for liking a beer as well, which wouldn't have hurt him settling in, in Manchester. And I think that was coming it's that thing that was coming from Valencia as well. You know, he wasn't coming from a, a you know, Bart or Roger, which is like ultra serious and, you know, quite po faced in its own way. Like he was coming from a region of Spain that's a bit more relaxed. But yeah, I mean if you look at the, the all time Premier League assists, like Giggs is way out in front. But after that, it's Fabregas, Rooney, Lampard, Bergkamp, Silver's sixth all-time, 93 assists. So, you know, that just shows you what his, um, you know, what his impact was. good company, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, that, so that's what, an assist every four and a goal every six. That's not a bad return on 24 million quid, is it? No, absolutely. And, and just the, um, you know, again, the emotional... Yeah, the emotional connection that he seemed to have with the club was um, was outstanding as well. So also in that that run of signings, um, another couple of important players. So Ed and Jacko, renowned. I mean, I think a really underrated goal scorer. Um, yeah, really 100%. underrated. Uh, and it was the fact that City that season could and they had this this rotation of strikers that they could just bring on at any time, could didn't they? You know. Uh, they had, you know, they had Balotelli, they had um, Aguero, and they had, um, and they had Jacko, and they could just kind of mix and match. Yeah, I think Jacko, in a, in a sense, str- uh, suffered from the same sort of thing that Drogba did when he first came in, which is when, especially in England, when you come in for big money from abroad, there's a, you know, you almost like see people fold their arms and say, "Come on, then impress me." And he didn't score a tremendous amount of goals straight off the bat, but you know, if you look at his career. He's obviously kind of proven that wrong over time. And and more than that, it was the intelligence with which he could play a lot of the time, especially in some of these games where, you know, it's not him that puts the final touch, but, he, you know, the movement to create. You see him doing in Italy now as, as like a much more seasoned professional. Just some of that early criticism that he took and has maybe led to him being seen in a lesser light than I think he should. And I guess, you know, the fact that Aguero clearly in the title winning season has all the headlines um, 
you know, quite quite rightly. I mean, it was a, not not only about that last goal; it was a completely sensational debut season in the Premier League. But yeah, Jacko was a excellent goal scorer, um, really good squad player for City for a really long time, and he's and he's done well everywhere he's been. Um, and Tevez had had the headlines the year before as well, for the most part, as along with the uh, the other. His, his, let's just call him his young Italian teammates. We haven't really introduced him yet. No, indeed. I mean, we should talk about Balotelli. I mean, what do you, how, how do you even introduce Mario Balotelli into this conversation? I mean, uh, 24 million quid again. Seems to be City's favourite amount of money to spend that summer. So three players all came in at the 24 million. Now, of course, Balotelli wouldn't have the longevity of the other two. But, I mean, what a talent. These players like Balotelli and Adriano who come into the game and light it up with their personality and with their, you know, spectacular play. But ultimately, you know, they don't end up having that kind of lasting success in their career. Like football's all the better for for those stories, isn't it? It's a lot more bloody interesting than an Alan Shearer, isn't it? You know, (laughs) it's, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's value for money. He's absolute showman, isn't he? And he, he's, off his head isn't he but that's we love that you know we love we, we love a player like that in this country no matter who they're playing for it, it's just yeah that's what you want it, he's box office absolute box office and more importantly especially at this point on his day he was an incredible player I guess even till today on these days an incredible player but you know he's you want someone that's going to go out and give you the same thing every week that's not the man for you that that's where you go with Jekko. Some someone who can just do something totally mad and out of the ordinary for good for better or for worse, on the pitch or off it, you know, that's Balotelli. That's the player that you you, you love to see. Could be a bit frustrating when he plays for your club at times, but you know, you live with that, don't you? It's like when we know when we were growing up, there were all these players. Like there seems to be about fifteen different South American players that all had the nickname El Loco. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, that's the Edgimundos and yeah. <laughs> Balotelli's in that tradition, isn't he? El, you know, obviously Italian rather than South American, but definitely in the El Loco tradition. There's, uh, I, I remember a few episodes back. Maz was saying about, I think it was the Arsenal episode about where you were in it and you found them, and it kind of brings home to me because I was sort of getting to a point where I was sort of watching Villa and following Villa more closely than I was following football to a large degree but you always had one eye on Man City and it was partly because it was an interesting story it was partly because you were seeing a a side that you'd seen them go down to the the third tier and come back up so and they hadn't burned through the goodwill that they probably have by now you know the fans are a very different fan base now but back then they hadn't uh, so you add all that up, but then there was a, f- a few players as well that really attracted the attention. You know, Silva was one, Toro was the other, and the last one was Balotelli, because what the hell was he going to do next? You know, he's just, you just couldn't take your eyes off the kid. In a sense, I think the fact that he eventually tipped over to the point of basically irrelevance was a bit of a tragedy for modern football, because the Balotelli that could have produced enough to maintain a presence at top level you know football whether that was for Italy or or for one of the top clubs in the game that would have just been well it would have made the back half of the last decade more interesting just for having his presence there 
and it should be remembered that, that of course, the famous Aguero goal was set up for him by Balotelli, who could have had a shot and had the vision to realise that Aguero was in a better position. And I think that's a contribution to that goal that's, that's often criminally overlooked, actually. But yeah, what a player. And of course, anyone that drives around Manchester with 50,000 quid on their bar seat and then when the police stop and says, why have you done that? It says, because I am rich. Like, you know, that's uh, <laughs> the kind of guy you want on your team, really, isn't it? And of course, uh, a couple of other key signings in this window as well. Um, Alexander Kolarov comes in from Lazio, 60 million. Again, ends up being a great servant for City. Not the world's greatest defender from fullback, but uh, as an attacking fullback and as someone that can bang a free kick. Yeah, got some crosses and some free kicks on him, hasn't he? Oh, goodness me. It was kind of almost like, um, I guess it's similar to what Liverpool get from Trent in a way. You know, he's not not necessarily the world's best defender but you get so much for him in the offensive phase that that you know the odd laps defensively for a top top team like that it, it doesn't matter too much uh, and of course we should talk about Mr Reliable as well um, so James Milner 18 million from Villa what were your feelings on that deal Pete obviously as a Villa fan Milner have been your your best player more or less they've taken Barry off you the year before um, did it feel like you'd gone into this uncomfortable zone of being a city feeder club yeah i wouldn't have phrased it like that but the the import of what you're going at is basically right yeah we knew at this point that there was no more kind of fight in it and that our little run you know what we were looking up was over we were now trying to tread water hold on as best we can not fall too far but we knew city were going past us at this point we know tottenham are probably gone past us as well yeah, I, I remember the deal was not actually that bad on paper because it was 18 million plus Stephen Ireland. And Ireland had had a good kind of run at City before all these big names started to come in and was a tidy enough little footballer. And the thought was, OK, if you can get that kind of player back and 18 million, that's not too bad a deal. What would eventually kind of happen with so many of these transfers where we did something like that was that having been at a club that was on the up and moving down and you know as they saw it they never quite delivered again you know Ireland was far from the only one he went from being a very interesting and unusual player that would contribute quite a lot to not adding a great deal whereas Milner that transfer basically yeah basically broke the that O'Neill team up you know that was like the last moment because Barry the year before was a real kind of wedge through it and taking Milner who'd moved it from the wing into centre midfield where he was really effective and, and added so much taking him as well was the final straw and I think this is what City were doing at this point was that they were weakening the teams that they were chasing which is a really smart thing to do you know Arsenal is the obvious example you take half of their first team uh, but they, they did it just as much to us in in taking those two players. And yeah, it, we were never, this is the last season, 2010-11, where we were kind of in the same ballpark as City for a decent stretch. After that, we never would be again. It's, it's funny enough, it's what Newcastle have been doing, isn't it? I mean, if you think about they take Chris Wood from Burnley and stuff like you know, Dan Byrne from Brighton. Yeah, Trippier. Atletico Madrid, not quite the same, but but you know Newcastle were a, a, a similar in the sense that they've kind of 
they've bought from the teams around them just to kind of arrest the slide. And then I guess they'll start, you know, they'll start picking off kind of bigger targets as the uh, Saudi money comes in. So, yeah, yeah Trans City, an interesting model here. It's the transfer equivalent of a six-pointer, isn't it? You get a player and they lose one at the same time. And, and you know, I mean, I, I guess if you look back to Chelsea's influx of money in that, I mean, even if you look into the, the, the first flush of the Harding money, you know, they were taking players from, you know, key players from the kind of teams around them. Um, and then if you think about those first years of Bramovich, you know, taking all those young promising players like Joe Cole, Steve Sidwell, people like that. Yeah, the money is going to is going to mean that, you know, you can go out and weaken the competition and strengthen your own squad. OK, so so we've got a lot of the key players involved. But of course, the, the dawn of the 2011-12 season that we're talking about, less signings um, this time around. They've got the nucleus. They've got Roberto Mancini in place. Mark Hughes has gone. Mancini's there. Clearly a manager who was a magnificent footballer himself. One of the most elegant and um, fun to watch number 10s of his time. And... Um, they bring in Clichy, who obviously ends up being, um, again, a good signing. It was a kind of um, poor man's Ashley Cole, I was thinking, isn't he, really? Kind of it who was Arsenal. exactly how it was. He was like <laughs> mini Ashley Cole, wasn't he? He was it's always what he looked like for us. And, you know, we we obviously downgraded and then downgraded again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you ended up with Kara Sanya, who's one of the, uh, the, uh, the poor man's girl, Clichy. So, yeah, we've got, so we've got Clichy coming in. But then, of course, Aguero. 36 million, again, it seems ludicrously cheap now in retrospect. Um, interestingly, was a player who uh, was always thought of in Spain as being more of a number 10 type, but then quickly at City ends up being their, you know, their major number nine and ends up, of course, becoming arguably um, the greatest Premier League striker and He's certainly in that conversation with Henri and Shearer now, isn't he? Yeah, I, I, I think you, you can't discount him from that conversation. Yeah, all, all, almost a nine and a half, isn't he, really? He's kind of somewhere in the middle, but as the main man, but with, with you know, more strings to his bow, you'd say, than a, a typical number nine, you know, a traditional number nine, should I say. But yeah, I mean, you, you don't get many of those anyway these days, do you? fantastic attacker fantastic striker fantastic finisher absolute goal scorer I, I think in terms of goals per game he's number one in terms of hat-tricks I think he's number one I think in terms of away goals I think he's number one um so yeah he is a you know remarkable remarkable goal scorer um and not only that like after Pellegrini uh, went and Pep came in. I think everybody felt that he wouldn't fit into a Pep team, and he absolutely fit into the Pep team and scored a billion more goals. You know, and you saw Pep's reaction. You know, when he left in the summer, you know, Pep in tears on the touchline. We cannot replace him, which has of course been uh, memed many times since then um, for for other things. <laughs> um, but but yeah, I mean, what an incredible player! Um, on his debut, comes off the bench in City's first game of the season, scores a couple of goals, and he just never stops scoring. Mm. I think we lose sight of 
just how crazy the transfers have gone since then, since 2011. Um, it was a significant chunk of money at the time. And, you know, there were, the number of transfers that were more expensive back there were a lot less than there are now. You know, you, you were probably talking... If there were ten, you'd have you know you'd have been able to rattle them off fairly easily. Now there's probably dozens and dozens, and he's only what twenty three when they sign him. Yeah, you know he's he's one of the hottest young properties in Spanish football, in world football, and they've gone out and and put this chunk of money down. And again, it's another statement of intent because they've been kind of inching the way up over the last few years. And I think the the really big moment was winning the FA Cup. Uh, you know, Jose Mourinho always liked to say, didn't he, that the reason that his teams did well in the League Cup was because you want to create that habit of winning and and get the you know get the first trophy under the belt. And City had got that when I think they beat Stoke um, in the FA Cup final. Yeah. So having done that, got the first trophy under the belt. Bang! Here you go, big wedge of money for one of the you know the hottest young prospects in world football. Go and play up front in front of the likes of Silver and Torre, and yeah, they're just the, the team to beat all of a sudden. So they get their season up and running. I think it was the Monday night game, if I remember rightly. And they have newly promoted Swansea, um, who they smash 4-0. Obviously, Swansea ended up having a really good season under Brendan Rodgers, but um, they get they get smashed 4-0. Um, Jacko, two goals from Aguero and, uh, and David Silva. So the debut, the debut boys um, making hay. I mean, this is what we should say as well is the City team is incredibly entertaining, scored a lot of goals. And despite what we said about them having a solid defence, like they didn't, <laughs> they didn't always defend that well. Um, certainly, in the beginning months of the season. So you know they they have a three-two against Bolton. Um, they smashed Spurs five-one at, at White Hart Lane. I remember that game. It was absolutely Jacko, was wasn't it? Horrendous. Yeah, Jacko scored four, I think, in that game. Good lord. Um, and then um, you know they beat Wigan three-nil, and then you know they just uh, until. Uh, until Christmas, they're imperious. Um, they have the six-one against Man uh, Man United, the uh, Why Always Me game. Um, Johnny Evans gets sent off, and they just absolutely run United ragged. Um, and as statements of intent go, you know that there aren't many bigger than that. Is that um, the biggest, like biggest shock result that United had had since Newcastle batted them in '97 or whenever it was? I mean. That just didn't happen to Man United. Certainly not, no. I mean, because obviously, like, yeah, because Arsenal had had it, hadn't they? When was that season when Arsenal got beat 8-1 or whatever it was? A couple of years before, maybe. Oh, by, by, the, by this point, we were getting it pretty regularly. A couple <laughs> more years, it, it was just a standard thing. You'd shocked if we didn't get battered five by five away from home at a big club. Um, yeah, and lots of teams did, you know, middle mid-table teams would occasionally get an absolute thumping. You know, Villa were usually good for one by a by a top team, uh, but but Man United it just didn't happen to. And I just the main thing I remember from this game is Silva and about four or five players trying to tackle him. And you know, Man United defenders were no mugs. You know, just he'd just ride tackles and just take the ball, you know, as anywhere he wanted in the penalty area. It was like a different sport. And the goals were, you know, it was champagne stuff as well. I mean, the the Balotelli goal was fantastic. It, not just memorable for the celebration, like it was it was a brilliant, brilliant goal. Fantastic finish. They start to get a few dodgy results um, around Christmas time. So a nil-nil draw with West Brom on Boxing Day. They then go 
away to Sunderland, who were abject at the time, um, and lose 1-0 in a, the 93rd minute. Um, and although they then get yeah, back on form by dispatching Liverpool 3-0, poor Liverpool team that season, albeit. By the end of January, you know, they're losing to Everton 1-0 at Goodison. And, you know, United are starting to look a little bit ominous. Um, and it's an incredibly tight title race. And it starts to look like they're going to bottle it. Yeah, and it's Man City. So that was the narrative, right? Is is that supporting Man City is basically a ticket to a lifetime of pain. And that'll be the narrative right the way up to the final day. Almost right the way up to the final minute of the final day. So every, everyone is expecting that because Man City lose and because Alex Ferguson teams find a way to win, that this is only going to go one way. And I mean, I can't actually remember the United run all that well, but I remember City just kind of would drop points in games that you wouldn't expect and then kind of find a way to to kind of just hold on and kind of come back a little bit. And yeah, I, all I'm struck by is this that even when just when you thought it was done, they managed to put themselves behind the eight ball. You know, they, they had the goal difference, but was it Arsenal that managed to beat them? They had then kind of they had to keep winning and had to keep winning after losing to Arsenal just to to go into that final game and still needing to win. And it was the goal difference that meant that if they could get through that, they'd, they'd kind of see it out. But it just it was City, wasn't it? I mean, that's all you can say is that it was never going to be easy for Man City to pull Man United back in. But United were making uncharacteristic mistakes as well. Um, and, and that's what, you know, that's what made it um, so interesting. Um, so... At one point, United were, were were eight points ahead of City, but then United um, lost a game and drew the next three. Then City won all three, and then right as we get to the, sort of the end weeks uh, in the derby, um, City win one nil, and um, and that's when the goal difference becomes um, all important. And of course, as we get to this legendary climax. Um, and of course, you know, all the games on the last day being played simultaneously. So City ahead on goal difference. And at the point where United have just beaten Sunderland 1-0, um, there are five minutes of added time to go in the City game, which, uh, I mean, goodness me, what that game against QPR. QPR, of course, battling to avoid relegation. Joe Barton's just been sent off. It's a crazy, crazy game. Um, you know, not only did he elbow Tevez, he then also um, he kicked Aguero and headbutted company. I remember like Martin Tyler's commentary being like, uh, "Well, whatever he was going to get, it's been it's just been doubled." <laughs> it was a crazy game. I mean, one of the things I really remember is that the, the sheer number of subplots in that game because you had Sean Wright Phillips, who is obviously a bit of a minor Man City legend, now playing for QPR on the other side. Uh, you've got Anton Ferdinand playing for QPR while Rio is playing for Man United and they both obviously want the same set of results effectively to, you know, to, for QPR to stay up and Man United to win the title. And I remember the QPR being really good. I, I, I seem to recall that, you know, obviously they go, they've gone that 10, but actually they were pretty good value until the 90th minute for a 2-1 win and then it all just changed. <laughs> So Jamie Mackey scores in the 66th to put, to put QPR 2-1 up. And of course, at this point, 
you know, QPR, you know, they think they need to win to uh, to stay up. And Jekko equalises for a corner and it's 90 seconds minute at that point. And of course, you, you don't have the whole transistor radio. It's funny, isn't it? Even with smartphones, um, football fans can only listen to important results that affect their team in a transistor radio. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel can like we it's just a tradition that will never die. Yeah, it's sort of like no matter how many ways, yeah. no matter how many ways we could do the FA Cup draw, they have to be done with balls out of a bag, basically. Um, well, I mean, what what's it like? You know, I've not been in a big stadium for a long time. I, I can't, I can imagine the reception gets a bit a bit choppy anyway. Yeah, it's crap. It, it's crap in a lot of them for sure. Can we just take a minute to appreciate the quality of Jacko's movement at that corner, by the way, because. QPR have been defending these corners brilliantly all along. You know, Kenny had just saved uh, a header from Balotelli a minute or so previous. Uh, but this time he's just imperious the way he kind of moves to like give the, the defender no chance of getting anywhere near him. It's like left to no doubt. This is not one of those corners where you just fire it in and hope that someone gets on the end of it. This is pure precision movement from a great, great striker. Yeah, and, and I think... Unfortunately, Jekko gets forgotten in all of this because, of course, if he doesn't score that equaliser, then Aguero doesn't get to score the one that comes next. It's a bit like how in, in 89, you know, Alan Smith scoring the first goal is always forgotten um, in favour of Michael Thomas. But, of course, if Smith doesn't get the first one, then, you know, Arsenal need to win that game against Liverpool by two clear goals. So if if the first one doesn't go in, then Michael Thomas doesn't get that. You know, the second one doesn't matter. So, yeah, I mean, we should really lord Jekko as much as we do as much as we do Aguero on that one. So we're in the 94th minute. Um, City just absolutely searching, searching, searching. Balotelli slips the pass through to Aguero. And of course, then we get that absolutely ice cold finish, you know. And it's funny because he lets the pass run, doesn't he? He could have hit it a bit earlier and he just kind of waits for the absolute perfect moment to hit it. And he smashes it in doesn't he yeah I think the the telling point for me is that Aguero's come a little bit deep in the first instance so he actually picks the ball up 35 or so yards from goal so he plays the ball into Balotelli then picks it back up you know he's making things happen at this point and I guess it goes back to what we're saying about him being thought of maybe as more of a 10 at this point and kind of a complete striker all, all in one go you know but he's playing off Balotelli to a degree the ability to ride that tackle when that's a fairly nailed on foul that he actually gets hit with in the process, you know, to keep that cool, to not snatch at it, to not kind of throw yourself down in the hope of winning the penalty, to keep everything together, to keep the cool, and then to slot that in. The man must have ice in his veins. That's all I can say, because I mean, I've got no words 10 years later, you know, I mean, what, what, what else can you say about it? A great of the best strikers in the world, isn't it? That, yeah, that ability to to keep composure in in situations like that, the highest pressure situations as you can imagine, and just just to keep keep calm and and do what others can't. A, a great, a great, a truly great football moment, you know. And I I think the only comparison to it is that Michael Thomas goal, really. Just like I can't imagine many goals that were higher stakes than that. And I think particularly the context of it, like it was going to be City's first. First Premier League title and first league title in a really long time, 40 plus years. So, I mean, the, the importance of the moment was just was just absolutely paramount. And I think, you know, that's when 
that's just when football really gets you, isn't it? I mean, I I remember, funny enough, I, I it was a really, I remember it was a really kind of really sunny day, like the end of May, wasn't it? But one of those incredibly hot days. And I remember watching this in a, a beer garden somewhere in Hove and just um, sort of keeping half an eye on it sort of as it was going on. And then just at the end, just completely just not believing what I was seeing. Crazy, it, crazy game of football. If it was a film, you'd call it far-fetched. I mean, you, you rattle it off. So it's the first title in 40-odd years. If they don't win it, they lose it to their closest rivals. The rivalry has been dealt up in the last couple of years anyway. A, a draw isn't good enough. They go into the injury time down. Again, if it was a film, you'd call it far-fetched. You'd tell them, go back and write something again. I can see why there are people who think, you know, on the strength of this game, that the Premier League is staged because it just is ludicrous. And yet there it is. I mean, I guess if you play enough games and, you know, you kick enough balls, eventually the ludicrous is going to happen. But, yeah, I don't think we'll ever see anything set up quite like this again. It was remarkable. And I think I you, you say that, you know, 89 to 2012 is not a long time, really, is it? Uh, when you consider how both of those are so just out of the ordinary. But, you know, they, they're both once in a lifetime finishes to the season. And the, the, what? that actually happened. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing that I think that we won't see again is, you know, City and United locked in that kind of tussle, let's say. You know, you, you're obviously going to see last day deciders again, but with it decided in injury time from a, two goals down between the two of the deadliest rivals in, you know, one never, city. You never no. know. Evan, Everton might go down the third tier pretty quickly and <laughs> get a rich stepdaddy come in and then bring them back up. You never I, know. I thought you were going to say Everton could end up playing, you know, against Tranmere for like yeah, there you go. Something. That's it. <laughs> last, last, last day, last day of the season against Tranmere for relegation to the conference or whatever it's called these days. Mike, Mike Dean in the crowd. <laughs> <laughs> the oh. quarantine, as people called him when he uh, just turned up on Tranmere's terraces for the whole of lockdown. Yeah, if, if, there, if there's anything that makes you want to cheer on Everton, that'd be it, wouldn't it? Of course, Mike Dean now, uh, now retiring, so we'll be have a lot more time to watch Tranmere now. Um, so, insane ends the season, and again, it was that sort of, it was the end of United's aura, I think, as well. I think that's the other importance of it, because although Ferguson kind of stays on for one more season, gets his own back, goes and buys Van Persie, gets the title back, of course, then you, you get Moyes, and you get Van Gaal, and you get Mourinho, and you get Ole, and, you know, the current absolute disaster that's unfolding at Old Trafford and you know that that era of, of United dominance is just gone in the same way as it was when Dalglish stepped down at Liverpool um you, you kind of have that that whole era of domination that was really you know from our boyhoods all the way <laughs> you know all the way and way into our adulthoods comes to an end really and I think mm. the significance of City supplanting United in this kind of way and and then from then on like City thrashing United becomes a regular thing like this 6-1 is the prelude to I mean I think there's a uh, in the Moyes season there's a 5-1 I think um, and it just seems to happen regularly now that Pep will take 
City to United and embarrassed them. I know that they did have a couple of United have a couple of wins with Scott McTominay randomly turning into prime Zidane for a game. But on the whole, the the balance of power has completely shifted now. Like at the time, even then, you knew like City have had all this money coming in the space of a couple of years. They finally won the FA Cup and finally won the league. You you didn't know when Alex Ferguson was going, but you looked at him and you knew it was a matter of time. And you kind of knew, regardless of how it went for Man United, it wasn't going to be smooth. It wasn't going to be easy. This was only going to go one way. We didn't know when, but the relationship between those two clubs and the relationship between Man United and the rest of the league was never going to be the same again. And it hasn't been ever since. And we should probably say as well that, that you know, the the infrastructure that, that, I mean, I think that the thing that's really impressive about, you know, the City Football Group is that they they brought in, of course, the um, former um, sporting director from, from Barcelona, Soriano, who has put in place a structure which has meant that, you know, they have players like Phil Foden coming through the youth system. They have a scouting structure and... You know, since they won this title, they don't necessarily spend bags and bags of money on players. You know, they will they will pick up a few key signings that the manager needs, but they're not going out and just spending ludicrous, ludicrous amounts anymore. It's all kind of within the structure. Um, and they've gone from, you know, success with Mancini to success with Pellegrini to success with Guardiola. And then, you know, whatever the succession plan for Guardiola ends up being, they're going to have all of that structure in place and it's difficult to foresee you know City not being the dominant force for quite a long time to come you feel like Liverpool when Klopp goes will Liverpool stay up there I'm not convinced I think City will survive Pep going because they because of the financial backing they have but also because of everything they've done to make that an elite club yeah, it's hard to hard to argue with what what they've built up there is is a really solid foundation and uh, a really strong base and yeah, uh, I think the personnel doesn't really matter so much at this point as long as the funding's there and what they've got in place is there, it, it, they're going to attract those big names. You know, they they they've got their place. They're they're one of the biggest clubs in the world the very very biggest clubs in the world and you know it's hard to move that you're you're gonna continue to attract continue to attract continue to attract top players when you like that so you know short of having a few bad seasons uh, which it's hard to do you've got to really fall off or you know really use your lose your funding like by building a new stadium or something like that for that to happen and you know obviously we're not saying Guardiola's not an absolute elite elite manager probably the the, one of the greatest ever and has been a huge part of their you know their success in recent years since he came on board but when he goes I don't think you're going to have what you had at United after Ferguson went as long as they get that you know as long as as long as they get that that sort of post Guardiola appointment right of course which they might not it's going to be Vieira isn't it it's going to be Vieira because that's that's what they're going to do they're going to (laughs) take who I want and we're going to be like, no, no, we're going to be here in four years and be like, no, no, trust Arteta's process. We're almost there. Trust the process. By Palace. Indeed. Uh, any last thoughts on on this this city side? Of course, they would go on to, you know, basically be in the uh, the top two 
for the next few years, uh, would win another title um, under Pellegrini as well before Guardiola took over. And even despite of his team, even was there for the first little bit of Guardiola as well, particularly Aguero and company. But but yeah, uh, any any more thoughts on what was just a terrific team that came together in a, you know, came together through money, of course, but but some excellent and well-chosen signings. Nothing in particular to add, just to reiterate that, uh, yeah, they they bought a great spine and they supplemented that in the last couple of years with some really exceptional attacking talent that even if you were not as interested in football as you had been 5, 10, 15 years earlier, you still kind of wanted to see what Man City did. Excellent. So obviously, uh, you know, a, a sort of more recent episode there, um, we're going to be looking Back to the late 90s next episode, we're going to have a look at Martin O'Neill's Leicester team, uh, the team that, of course, put Martin O'Neill on the map as um, one of the young managers to watch. And, um, you know, a team that really did uh, ruffle a lot of feathers at that time, particularly Alan Shearer's feathers were, were ruffled by that team, shall we say. Um, we can get into that next time around, but do join us for that. Um, and then, of course, we will be doing our traditional uh, four at the back team of the season as well. Um, so, you know, look forward to how we try and, you know, shoehorn Kevin Pressman and Sergio Aguero into the same team.